Let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, my heart's desire is that you would open this great promise from Jeremiah 32 in such a way that our faith would be mightily strengthened and the roots would go down deep into the rivers of grace and that the trunk would be made thick and strong for the day of drought and wind and the leaves would be made broad and soft for the shading of the needy and the fruit would be rich and luscious for the hungry and the thirsty. Lord, this is what your word is all about. This is what faith is all about and life is all about. And so let these few minutes not be in vain, I pray. Draw near by your spirit and open every heart to hear what you have to say. Guard my mouth from error, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been talking about living by faith in future grace in the last couple of days. And the reason is because I'm on a mission from my church because the mission statement of our church and the mission statement of my life is I exist, we exist, Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis exists to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. And as I have reflected for the last 25 years or so on how you do that and what kind of life magnifies the supremacy of God, I have come to the conclusion that it is a life of faith and future grace. It simply means trusting God for his promises and then taking all the risks appointed for you in the confidence that his promises will take care of you. And so radical love is born out of that and worship is born out of that and joy is born out of that. And so if you like rhymes, we have concluded in these last two days together that a life of faith and future grace sees to it that God is magnified and I am satisfied and life is sanctified. And that's everything. That's everything. Now, what I want to do this morning is pick up on a little promise that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So my aim this morning is to simply build more faith in future grace. And I'm going to take one promise, and I'll get there in a minute, but I'm going to kind of do a backward sermon this morning and do the illustrations first and the exposition last. So let me tell you a few stories, which are the text in life, as it were. The first one, oh, first let me tell you a poem. I wrote a four-line poem. I wrote this, and I wrote it to capture the point of the text and the message. It's all about sustaining grace. This promise I'm going to get to in Jeremiah in a moment is all about sustaining grace. So here's a definition of it in four lines. Sustaining grace. What is sustaining grace? Title of the poem. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain, and then in the darkness 
is there to sustain. I'll come back to that several times, but there's the definition. I'll say it one more time here at the beginning. Not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain. Then, in the darkness, is there to sustain That's what I mean by sustaining grace. And I know that in a room like this, there is much pain, much trouble, much darkness. And the reason I stress this is because if I were to define grace for you as that which bars what is not bliss, or that which is flight from all distress or that which can't possibly order your trouble and pain, I would be a liar. And I would be unbiblical and out of sync with real life and real experience. The main point will be, it's just unbiblical to think about mighty, sovereign grace that way. But here's some stories to illustrate what I mean by sustaining grace. My denomination is headed by a man named Bob Ricker. He doesn't live too far from here. He's got a wife named... Got a wife named Dee. He came to my church last June and he told me the story about his daughter who some years ago was in a car accident. Very serious car accident. And uh, some injury happened around her neck or head such she wasn't getting air. It was turning blue there on the road. And behind her was a car with a doctor in the car, who just happened to have an air tube in his pocket, just also happened to have the courage and the willingness to risk malpractice suits to stick it into her throat and save her life. And he said that that's the only reason she's alive today. And then just a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I can't remember the timing, he did her wedding. And as she and her husband stood before him at the altar, and he, performing the wedding, looked at her, he pointed to those little scars, and he said to her, those scars are not scars only, they are memorials of sustaining grace. Here's a thought that went through my mind. Bob Ricker is not naive. He knows that if sustaining grace can see to it that there's a doctor in the car behind, that there's an air tube in his pocket, that there's courage in his heart, and that the timing is perfect, he could have prevented the accident. But sustaining grace is not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our trouble and pain. And then, the side of the road, in the darkness, is there to sustain. Here's another one. This one's from my own family, and it's not quite as tense as... Almost death. My wife got in our 1986 
Chevy Caprice station wagon that we just bought for $1,900. What a deal, I thought. I thought. And headed for Georgia without me with little one-year-old Talitha and Barnabas, 13, and Abraham helping her drive at 16, and one hour south of Indianapolis, it stops in the middle of nowhere on a Saturday evening. So here she is, without her husband, who's supposed to make life protected and good, alone in the middle of nowhere, Saturday evening, with a car that won't run one hour south of Indianapolis. What do you do? You wait, and a car pulls up behind, and in the car is a 67-year-old farmer who lives not far away, and he asks if he can help, and she says, well, I suppose all we need to do is find a motel because nobody's going to be able to fix this car before Monday morning. If you could just direct us and maybe help me and my family to get there. He said, well, look, we don't live too far away. You want to come stay with us? Hmm. So she throws out a little fleece and says, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to inconvenience you. And he says, well, you know, the Lord says if you minister to somebody, it's like ministering to him. Hmm. So she does one more test. She says, well, could we go to church with you tomorrow morning? And he says to this Baptist pastor's wife, if you can take a Baptist church. <clears throat> okay, so that's taken care of. So they go to his house, and not only does he take the whole family in, he looks at the car and he says, your radiator's shot, leaking out everywhere. So I got a friend in Indianapolis, I'll get up early Monday morning, drive up before he opens, get the radiator, come back, put it in. He's a retired aviation mechanic, won't take any money for this. Puts it in. She's on her way by 10. And here's the icing on the cake. He's got a pond on his farm. And my 13-year-old catches a 19-inch catfish. <laughs> Said, this is the best thing that ever happened in our vacation. The car broke down. Now, if God's in his sustaining grace, who by his wonderful mercy puts all kinds of silver linings around our clouds, could see to it that there was a farmer... Just one hour south of Indianapolis. Who is a Christian? Who is a Baptist? And who is willing to stop, take my whole family in, and on top of everything is an airplane mechanic and can put in a radiator and not charge for it and drive up and get it and have a pond with a 19-inch catfish swimming around at the bottom with his mouth open waiting for a worm. He could have stopped the accident. He, he could have saved the radiator till Barnesville, Georgia. Piece of cake. No problem for God at all to keep radiators running for another ten hours. Sound familiar to your life? Sustaining grace is not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this. The grace that orders our trouble and pain. And then in the, in the darkness is there to sustain. Story number three. I've got a young man in my church who has a baby that was born blind last week. And it's uh, not been easy for his faith to be maintained. And he came to me. Actually, it was emailed and he came to me. 
through the email, saying, you know, John, there's been a lot of wonderful support and a lot of good things have been said. Nobody can really know what it's like to have your first baby born without any eyes. Um, and it would have been easier had Jesus not healed the man in John 9. Remember that story? John 9, the, the man born blind. Jesus comes and the leaders say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. It is that the glory of God might be manifest. And then he healed him, and the glory of God was manifest. And this man with a little blind baby says, would have been easier had he not done it that way. And I said to him, he didn't do it that way for Paul. In 2 Corinthians 12, remember the thorn in the flesh? We don't know what it was, but it was thorny. And it was painful, and he cried out, God, take it away, God, take it away, God, take it away, three times. And three times the answer comes back, no, no, no. And then Paul gets it, and he says, the reason Jesus gives is that my grace, my sustaining grace, is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul relents, and he says, all right. Most gladly then, therefore, will I rather boast in my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I will boast, I will be content in my weaknesses with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then am I strong. It is not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders our Thorns in the flesh and our broken cars and our choking daughters. And then in the darkness is there to sustain. One more illustration. My church is 125 years old. And in 1885, March 16, when the church was 14 years old, it caught fire. The building caught fire. I wish the church would catch fire. You understand? The, the building caught fire. The building caught fire. And uh, we did some research on this. It burned down. It was destroyed. And one of our young women, who's a real researcher, she went down and got out the old microfilms from the Minneapolis Tribune from 100, whatever years ago that is, 100 and 12 years ago, and uh, she found the articles on the fire. And the articles back in those days, religion was okay in the press. And, and so this article was celebrating the goodness of God because the firemen came to the church, climbed up on the roof with their hand-pumped hoses and were pouring water in, and the whole roof collapsed except for the little patch where the firemen were standing. And it was a big deal in the newspaper. Sustaining grace was celebrated in Minneapolis. And just a few months later, owing to that sad tragedy, the church we're in now was bought, was bigger, was better, and so it all worked out wonderful. And I thought as I heard that story, 
if God can hold up a little patch of roof for the sake of a few probably pagan firemen, then whatever little teeny-weeny spark started that fire, he could have gone and saved the church. He could have done that. But sustaining grace is not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this, the grace that orders your trouble and pain, and then in the darkness is there to sustain. I don't know why, but I was thinking this morning about the Titanic. Fifteen hundred people drowned in the sinking of the Titanic. And it's because the boat hit an iceberg. Now, according to the Bible, God rules the wind. And Jesus, according to the Gospels, can say, wind, stop. And it stops. So all God had to do was say, wind, about 30 minutes earlier, before it got to the iceberg, wind, blow. And the iceberg would have moved over 100 yards and nobody would have died. Things like that. You in your head? That's true. God sank the Titanic. Now, here's the text. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to it with me. Jeremiah chapter 32. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They're big books that shouldn't be too hard to find. Somewhere near the middle of your Bible. There's a verse in here I hope you'll memorize when we're done. Because it's precious. Let's start at verse um, 36 and read through verse 41. You know the situation that uh, the people of Israel have been taken captive in Babylon because God sent them there in judgment and he's going to bring them back. And he has a new covenant promise to make here to the people of God. Verse 36 of Jeremiah 32. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and in my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place. And I will make them dwell in safety, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. 
should take your breath away. Now, the reason this text relates to these stories is because they are in a mess. They're in Babylon. God has sent them there. It was no accident that they're there. He drove them there, it says in the text. And now, that's not the last word. He's going to, by sustaining grace, bring them back. Verse 37, Behold, I will gather them out of the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, in great indignation. And I'll bring them back to this place and I'll make them dwell in safety. Now, here's the question practically, personally in your life that I want you to ask the Lord and let him answer to you now. How can we know as we move in and out of trouble and difficulty and pain and distress and fretting and agony? How can we know that we will be sustained to the end? Make it to heaven, have the whole inheritance of glory and joy and perfection forever and ever. How can we be sure that having made some mustard seed size faith commitment to the Lord and having been indwelt by the Spirit and having begun a faltering path of sanctification, how can we be sure we're not going to abort, make shipwreck of faith, fall away, apostatize, blaspheme, forget the Lord, be lost, go to hell, and enjoy nothing of God forever. How can we be sure that's not going to happen? Because that's a mega issue when you get into hard times as to whether you're going to last. Not just whether you're going to live physically, but whether your faith is going to carry through the pain that you're in. Or whether you're going to lift your fist against God and say, if you're that sovereign and you're that great and you're doing this to me, I don't want any more to do with you. I'm out of here. How do you know you won't do that someday and be out of here and out of heaven? And that's what this text is about. It's all about the new covenant promises of why that's not going to happen to God's people. And the answer is it's not going to happen because sustaining grace is sovereign grace. I don't know how it is with you, but I'll tell you how it is with me. And I take comfort that there are hymns and songs that show me it is this way with other people as well. And one that you may or may not know goes like this. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my. Anybody know the next word? What kind of heart? Wandering heart. To thee. Now, you ever pray like that? Let your goodness like a fetter. Tell me another word for fetter. Chain. Let your goodness like a chain bind my wandering maverick, wayward, pulling at the chain heart to you. You pray like that? If God doesn't chain me to God, I'm a goner. That's my that's my belief. My understanding of sustaining grace is that it isn't made of chains. I'm a goner. I'm out of here. My flesh is a wandering flesh. And everything in the world is inviting me to leave him. Come on. Come on. Come on. And there's enough left in me to say, that would be attractive. That would be attractive. And if grace doesn't work to chain me to a superior satisfaction, I'm going to be blinded. And go after the fleeting pleasures 
that are beckoning me. The song continues. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh God, and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Now that hymn writer had it right. He prayed right. Are we really supposed to pray like that? Are we? Are there foundations in the scripture that encourage us to pray? Keep me, oh God. Preserve me, oh God. Defeat every rebellion that rises in my life. Overcome every niggling doubt that comes. Deliver me from destructive temptation that begins to take root in my mind. Nullify every fatal argument that I start to throw up against your sovereignty and the pain that it seems to be ordering in my life. Expose every demonic deception that comes against me. Tear down every kind of allurement that hooks me. Shape me, keep me, save me, preserve me. You pray like that? If you have the confidence that without that kind of sovereign, sustaining grace in your life, you're going to make it, you're in grave danger. Because you were never designed to make it on your own. And when sin kicks in, contrary to God's original design, you got no hope of making it on your own to heaven. Sovereign, sustaining grace doesn't get you there. So let's go to verse 38. And watch God commit himself to you. They shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. For their own good and for the good of their children. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Can you believe that God Almighty talks like that? Now, lest there be a skeptic in the crowd who says, that's a promise made to the Jewish people. That's not made to us. Hmm. That's Israel's promise. What are you doing? Taking Israel's promise and applying to all these Gentiles out here. Well, I take Israel's promise and apply it to you Gentiles because of a few simple New Testament truths that are implicit in the Old Testament. Namely, that Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.18. And all those who by faith are in Christ are in the seed of Abraham. Or as Galatians 3.7 says, those who are of the faith of Abraham are the children of Abraham. How many in here have the faith of Abraham? Raise your hand. Okay, there are a few that are not sure about that. 
Got to teach a little bit on that, Steve. You probably have. No problem. The faith of Abraham, according to Romans 4, is what you got to have to be saved. It's faith in the promises of God. If you have the faith of Abraham, you are a son or a daughter of Abraham, which means you are, according to Romans 2, 29, a true Jew. Which means the whole Old Testament is your book. And just slight changes being made according to redemptive history, like the sacrifice has been given, so all the sacrifices are over. And he's our high priest, so all the priesthood is over. And a few changes like that. It's your book, and you read it and believe it. What's more, this is called the everlasting covenant in 3240. And back in 3133 and following, it's called the new covenant. And Jesus said in Luke 22, 20 or 29, I forget the verse, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What we were doing right here in the Lord's Supper is tasting the emblems of the sealing of the new covenant for every Gentile and Jew who by faith are in Christ. Now that's a little hermeneutical defense of using this text. So it's, it's your verse. Don't let anybody say to you by some dispensational shenanigans here that this is not your verse. This is your verse. So let's hear it. And I want to unpack it real briefly in four promises that are here. Take every one of them and love it. Verse 38. God promises to be our God. They will be my people and I will be their God. Now, those are common sentences in the Old Testament. Please don't run over them at 65 miles an hour. Pause and say, what does it mean to have the creator of the universe as my God? And to have him say to to me, you are my people. What does that mean? Well, since we only have one sermon to preach instead of four, it means in a sentence that all of God's godness is there for you. All that he is is God in infinite power, infinite wisdom, infinite knowledge, infinite justice, infinite goodness, infinite love, infinite mercy, eternality, immortality, absolute being is there for you just the way your Visa card is there for you. Nobody else can use your Visa card unless you tell them your PIN number. Or whatever numbers you're supposed to use. This is... Oh. You don't know what's on the front of it, though. That's an in-house joke, folks. Love this promise, folks. I am your God, spoken by the God of the universe. What more can He say than to you He That's promise number one. I will be your God. And everything I am, I am for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's promise number one. Number two. God promises to change our hearts 
and cause us to love him and fear him. Verse 39. I will give them one heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. You've got a heart of stone. If you're part of God's people. He's going to take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me. So the new heart that he gives to his people is a God-fearing heart. Always, he said, always. They will fear me always. Verse 40, second half of the verse, he says it again. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. In other words, when God is assembling a people for his own, from all the nations, He is not waiting to see who in their own sovereignty or self-determination elects him to be their God. Not waiting. He is giving new hearts. He is taking out hearts of stone, putting in hearts of flesh. He is putting the fear of God into people. If you are a Christian this morning, you did not Save yourself. God saved you by taking out an absolutely unresponsive heart. And some of you came into this room with those. And I pray are experiencing that transplant right now. He took out that heart of stone that had no interest in Jesus. Had no eyes for his glory. Had no delight in his beauty. Thought everything was a myth and useless thought sin was the way to go and death was the end of the line. And he put in a heart of reason and light and truth and joy so that the whole world of God opened up to you. You saw it as beautiful and true and reasonable, solving so many problems and making the universe make sense and giving meaning to your life. And you believe you didn't do that. You did not do that, folks. My view of what it means to be a Christian is so big and so amazing and so miraculous that the thought that a human being could do it is unthinkable. You can't think that thought. And this text underlines it. I will give them one heart. I will give them one way that they may fear me. I will put the fear of me in their hearts. So promise number two is God assembles a people of his own by sovereignly creating them with new hearts and putting the fear in. There's so many promises to that effect. You can go back to to Deuteronomy chapter 30, where it says in verse six, I will circumcise their hearts. These rebellious people of mine someday I'm going to circumcise their hearts so that they will love me. Nobody chooses to love God apart from the massive, sovereign, transforming work of God in your heart. Number three. Promise number three is verse 40. This is my favorite. God promises that he will not turn away from us. And that we will not turn away from him. Let's read it. I will make an everlasting covenant. Don't miss the word everlasting. This, the, the rest of the verse, the rest of the words in this verse show why that's such a precious word. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away 
from them to do them good. And if you stopped right there, you got people who say, oh, yeah, I know God will not turn away from me, but I can turn away from him. A sad view of salvation. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Now, look, if you don't understand that right freedom, power and authority of God, you don't yet understand the new covenant. Here's the difference between the old covenant made at Mount Sinai and the new covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus. In the old covenant, the stipulations were laid down, the commands were given, but no sovereign enablement was guaranteed. And what happens when flesh meets commandments without sovereign, divine, spiritual enablement is that it turns them into legalism and makes a ladder by which you try to climb into heaven instead of a railroad on which you highball to heaven with the power of God in your life. But in the new covenant, this is what is true. I will come to those people now. No longer will the flesh meet the law and create a legalistic enterprise. I will put into hearts what needs to be in hearts and guarantee this people will trust me, love me, fear me and make it to glory. I will never turn away from them and I will see to it that they will never turn away from me. And so if you ask me, how can I be sure that having made a good start with God, I'll finish it? My answer would be God will finish it. God will enable you. To get to the end. So if you say, oh, where does our eternal security come from? It does not come from any past decision, folks. So many people who come to me with wayward kids, they're off in the service somewhere in Nebraska or North Dakota, living like the devil, not believing. And the mom is heartbroken and she says to me, but I can remember when he was six, he walked to the front and right there he prayed to receive Jesus. I give her no security whatsoever. I say, look, there are a thousand ways to deceive ourselves, especially when we're six. And if this child prayed and is now an unbeliever and stays an unbeliever, that was a bogus prayer. If you can show me a card where he signed on the dotted line at an evangelistic crusade, and he forsakes the faith, I conclude he was never born again. And then she says, well, then where is my security? The answer is, it is in this verse. It's in God. I will not turn away from you if you're mine, and I will not let you turn away from me if you're mine. Which shows you there's a difference between those who are gods and those who are not gods. And perseverance proves who is God. Gods and who is not gods. Now, let me stick in a parenthesis here that I just was praying this morning and thought maybe it would be okay. It's for me, if not for you. I am very concerned with a theological movement today uh, spawned by... Several well-known theologians called the openness of God, which denies his omniscience of 
future human decisions, arguing that since humans have to have ultimate self-determination and must be creators in their own right, therefore decisions come not from God's supernatural oversight and control, but out of nothing created by sovereign, autonomous, self-determining human wills, and therefore God cannot know them. They do not exist and are not knowable until they are created by little godlets called humans. That's my prejudicial view of this view. This verse crashes with the whole new covenant if that view is true. Because if God says, I will not let any born-again believer ever forsake me ultimately, but will always bring them back to myself that they may be eternally secure. It means, folks, he rules your will. And if he rules it, he knows it. And therefore, any of you that denies the omniscience of God over future human decisions undermines the new covenant and Christianity. Close parenthesis. Don't believe that view. Fight it. I plead with you, especially you Trinity students. I don't think any of your faculty hold that view. I mean, you're competent to lift your voice with the kind of help you get over there to say, let's stop this thing in evangelicalism. It isn't evangelical. Last promise. We're almost done. Finally, God promises to do this, never to forsake you, never to stop doing you good, and never to let you turn away from him ultimately. God promises to do that with the greatest intensity imaginable. Now, I get that from verse 41, which just takes my breath away. I, this is God talking, it's not a human talking. I will rejoice over them, you, you new covenant people who trust Jesus. I will rejoice over you to do you good. And I will faithfully plant you in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Can you conceive, even conceive, all you great imaginers and you physicists and you poets, can you even conceive of an energy and an intensity greater than that? I do not believe it is possible to even conceive of an energy and an intensity and a force Greater than what's described with the phrase, with all my heart and with all my soul. Take, take all the desires and all the joys and all the intensities and all the longings that are created by all the desirable things in the universe. Money and sex and power and family and friends and prestige and and gather them all together, then take all of the hearts of all the human beings in the world. Let's just say six billion 
plus or minus a few dozen million and gather all those people with all those desires and put them in a bottle and tell me how that bottle compares in size with this intensity, this desire and this joy. And the answer is it compares like a thimble to the Pacific Ocean. And it's a very simple reason. This is no dramatic, rhetorical, sermonic flourish here. This is sheer mathematical reckoning. This says, all my heart, how big and extensive and measurable is the heart of God? Anybody got a word for it? Infinite. Infinite. You can't measure it. It's so much bigger than the Pacific Ocean. Therefore, I don't care how big you can conceive of intensity and desire and joy. You haven't come close to what this verse is saying about how much God is after you for good. God is rejoicing over the good of his chosen with an energy that is absolutely inconceivably great. Which means if you believe me this morning or if you believe Jeremiah or if you believe God. Then when you have that awful car accident on the way home today, you will not shake your fist in God's face. You will not. And when your baby is born blind, and when your marriage fails, and when you lose your job, and when your 37-year-old wife with five kids has breast cancer, like I prayed over last Tuesday night, you will not disbelieve this. You will not say, oh, he's turned away from me and doing good to me. Or at least the intensity of his desire for my good is now down to about a thimbleful. Don't believe that. Don't be an unbeliever. Please don't be an unbeliever in the promise of Jeremiah 32, 40 and 41. Because if it is true, there is not one millisecond of your life where he turns away from doing you good, even though terrible things happen to you. Sustaining sovereign grace is not grace to bar what is not bliss, nor flight from all distress, but this. The grace that orders your trouble and pain, and then in the darkness, is always, always there. To sustain. Father, my heart's desire for this people is first that those who are tasting the joy of saving grace, heart work from the Holy Spirit for the first time would yield. Save people right now. Save them. Take out the heart of stone. Put in the heart of flesh. So that when they leave in a few minutes, they're new. Would you do that? And then, Lord, I pray for another group of people. I pray for the group that has a view of you that will not let you be sovereign. That just cannot handle the thought. That you are still ruling when things go bad. I just pray that they yield. They don't have to understand it. None of us understands it fully. 
I pray, O oh God, that you would help people to believe that you're God, not just in the sun, but in the rain. That you're God in their lives, in the hard times, and that you're working all the pain together for their good. Like a father who uses discipline to bring holiness and peace into his wayward children, and even into his best children. And then I pray lastly, Lord, that all of us would have stronger faith. Oh God, I believe we're going to be tested in this land. And as we go to the nations and as we go to the neighborhoods, they're going to be testings that put us to the limit. And I just pray that our faith in Jeremiah 32:40 will never waver. I will make with you an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing you good. And I will not let you turn away 